Hello. Hi. Welcome to Truly Fabulously Monstrous. A podcast about true crime and weird things. I am half of your host, Hattie James. I am your other half of your host, Ace. Hi, Ace. Hi, Hattie. How are you? I am good. I am good. How are, how are you? I am doing okay. I am thinking about, because um, like my head's been itchy, like not, I don't have lice or anything. It's just like when I get anxiety, my head gets itchy. And because I have so much hair, yeah, it's so like. And your I hair feel, is thick. Yeah, I have a lot of thick hair and I feel like my scalp is suffocating. I, my head gets itchy just because I have, even though my hair is very, very short, I tend to shave my head a lot. Um, I noticed it's grown out a lot. It has grown out a lot. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it was just like two weeks ago, you sent me a snap of a completely buzzed head. It is also very thick. And once it, the, one of the, I have a long laundry list of reasons why I shave my head. Uh, number one is spite. Uh, (laughs) The very top of the list is spite. Uh, second, once I realized how easy it is to manage, I was like, I'm never going back to, I realized I, I'm realizing I have a lot of issues, like a lot of sensory issues about a lot of things. And one of them is my hair touching my ears in the back of my neck. So, uh, but another one is. Get a mullet. (laughs) I have debated about a mullet. I see the, the youth and the gays on TikTok being all with their cool, like, cool looking, like, uh, counterculture and their mom jeans and their vests and their big chunky glasses and their uh, rolled jeans and their mullets. And I'm like, you know what? That looks really cool on you. But I know the second I try to do it, I'm going to look like some kind of greasy goblin bog witch. Because that's what happens when I grow my hair out. I look like a bog witch. Um, But yeah, so I do that once my hair starts to grow in, the longer my hair gets, the worse my dandruff gets, no matter how much I condition and like coconut oil my scalp and I have one of those like special shower rubber things that you rub your hair with in the shower that's supposed to stimulate your scalp and prevent dandruff and I just have dandruff I just have dandruff now I just accept it um but shaving my head helps not have that so I'm very itchy because it's still summer and it's hot and I'm sweaty all the time because I live in New Jersey's grundle (laughs) (laughs) Southern New Jersey, the grundle of the U.S. Um, It's just damp all the time. And so that makes my head itch because I'm sweaty. (laughs) I'm a sweaty Betty. (laughs) For me, I had a conversation with my husband where I said I was going to get a wig. And as soon as I got a wig, I was going to shave my head. That way, if I was worried it wouldn't look professional, if I regretted it, I could just have a wig that I'd wear like when I have to go out in public. And then I could just have like free flow and like buzz cut when I'm home. Um, yeah, well, I, I, I had a, a wig, a wig stand, a, um, a wig comb and some cute headbands to accessorize it. So it wouldn't look as much like a fake wig, uh, in my Amazon shopping cart for like weeks and I haven't touched them. I told my husband today that, um, I was going to buy them possibly for my birthday. And I had it as far as the, I had to press the proceed to check out. And then my brain started going come on, Hattie, you could use that money to get things for the kids. Your, your, step, your, your stepdaughter has wanted to do more loom weaving. You could get rubber bands. There's that book that you could get your, your son. I, I'm just sitting there and I'm like, I can't press the button. I can't press the button. And then I turned to my husband and I'm like, sir, I can't press the button. He was like, can I see what you wanted to buy? 
and he pressed the button, didn't he? he pressed the button, and he was like, "Happy <laughs> birthday! Happy birthday! Happy birthday!" I'm so. glad you you deserve nice. You deserve to do nice things for yourself. Yeah. And if you ever decide you want extra wigs but don't want to buy more wig stands, I have a spare wig stand that is for like a Halloween wig from like years ago that I'm never going to use again. So if you want that wig stand, I will send you that wig stand. Okay, but yeah. as soon as those are in, um, snip, snip, uh, and, yes. then I'm, and then I'm shaving ah, it off. I am all about this. I am all about this. Yeah. I love it. I have something. Oh, it's Vandra. Speaking of Vandra, mm-hmm. I hate my hair. Um, but no, complete aside, I was going to eat this piece of candy corn, and then I realized that it has one of those, like, oh, oh no, some of the, it's the pumpkin-shaped candy corn. For yeah, it's like the melocrine ones, yeah. Yeah, and it has the, uh, like the, the the green top some yeah, of it must just, have like accidentally splooshed off it was like a leaf it looks like a perfect little vine oh it does oh that's so cute and i don't want to eat it now <laughs> oh no we've assigned feelings to it <laughs> i'm gonna take a picture of it and then i'm gonna eat it that's so cute though it does look like a perfect little pumpkin leaf yeah i'm so it's so cute oh tiktok immediately opened up <laughs> Unlock my phone. I got guns in my head and they won't go. <laughs> if I unlock mine right now, it would immediately start singing the no one nobody cool likes Tucker Carlson song. Because <laughs> that's what I've been listening to on a loop lately. Uh. it's like once in um freshman year of, of college, I brought my I was listening to music before class started and then I was like, oh crap, I'm gonna let class and I I closed my laptop and I put it under my arm and I, because I didn't have a laptop bag, I was 18 and stupid. And I walked to class and I opened it up and it started auto-playing. It started auto-playing immediately. And it's a good thing that all I was was a cringy, despicable emo slash goth because what started playing was OTEP. But it, so it wasn't anything like it'd be now, like it'd be embarrassing now. I'd open it up and it'd be like, well, I feel like shit. Oh, <laughs> shit. Feeling like a saggy, massive sack of shit. But but this time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it was like a very low-key English class, and I just opened my laptop and OTEP or some shit just started playing. <laughs> oh, that was a good yawn there, kitty kitty. Oh, good girl. Okay, um, she's a little bit clingy right now because um, like I said in uh the one of the previous episodes, my parents have recently been visiting. And uh, while my one cat, my big fluffy boy, he's very, very scared of every single thing ever in the world. So he, he like, he came out and by the end of the week that they were there, he was letting them pet him. But she loves every, like she like instantly, the second you come in the house, she's like, hello pay attention to me, don't touch me, pay attention to me, don't touch me. Um, but she really loves my mom, and now she's very clingy because she's, my parents uh, left this morning, and so now she's like, where did my friends go? We're oh. friends. And I'm like, it's okay, baby, I'm here, and she's like, yeah, but you're always here. Where'd my friends go? <laughs> Should we get to the episode? Let's do it. Let's get to it. Okay, so it's my turn for a crime. A crime. A crime. A crime. All right. So in the bonus episode, I talked about Robert Durst and his um, peeing escapades. His peeing escapades. Like I mentioned, his peeing escapades were not his first run-in with the law. Today, I'm going to discuss his first big crime that he was ever investigated for. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewind uh, 
a few decades. We're going to go back. It's the late 60s, early 70s now. So I'm not sure if you remember from the bonus episode, but I stated that after college, Robert went to work for his father, Seymour's real estate empire, the Durst organization. Yes. I'm not going to go into his background. I already did. Listeners, if you want to hear his background, go listen to the bonus episode. It's two episodes before this. Yes. It should be listed bonus episode. I haven't named it yet because I haven't edited it yet. So. I kind of <laughs> like the name you gave it in the folder. <laughs> <laughs> what? You mean, um, you mean Candy Pee Pee Tinkleman? <laughs> it's a contender we'll see what i end up actually naming the episode um so his first job at the durst organization was a mid-level property manager job he was in charge of overseeing properties and collecting rent from some of them durst organizations manhattan residential apartment complexes yeah that's pretty basic like entry we work for the if you're working for a family business that's a pretty that's like a test run we're gonna see if you're we'll see how bad you fuck this up yeah, exactly. Uh, so one of the tenants in one of these apartment complexes was a Kathleen McCormick, or as her family and friends called her, Kathy McCormick. So I'm going to, let me start off by saying it took ages to find any information on Kathy. All information, articles, documentaries, and even the Doe Network articles. And the Doe Network is like, he, here is a case. Here is the victim and all the information so that we can try to locate them or their remains. But it didn't really have any information on her. It was all focused on Robert. Every single site focuses on Robert Durst. Uh, and the major article I found that told us exactly who Kathy was, was a ta- an interview for a blog with her sister, Mary McCormick Hughes, as well as some tabloid articles where they interviewed other members of her family, like her, um, like her sister, Ginny. G- uh, so yeah. in this interview for this blog site, Mary McCormick Hughes also mentioned that the media and the world was more interested in Robert and the shocking story of his crimes than the story of his victims. So I'm going to do my best in this episode to paint as much of a story as I could find on, on Kathy. I've already talked about Robert's backstory. You can go see that in the previous episode. This backstory is going to be focused on Kathy. Uh, So Kathy was the youngest of five children, and she was born in uh, 1952. Her siblings were Anne, Mary, Ginny, and Jim, and she was the youngest. She was the baby of of the family. Her father was a telephone company representative, but he died young in 1966 when Kathy was only 14. Uh, Her mother was a working mom, which in 1966 was a big deal. Uh, But, you know, you kind of have to become a working mom uh, when you're blue collar and especially after your husband leaves you a widow with five kids. Right. Yeah. You kind of don't have a choice at that point. Yeah. And Kathy attended New High Park High School on Long Island. I was going to say, with the exception of Jim, all of those names are names of people in my family. (laughs) You have very basic yeah white people names yeah 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 think about it like yeah we do with like uh my cousins are shaking it up with the names of their kids to the uh not concern my my old concern initially of like my aunts and uncles were like really you're gonna name them that's a real name (laughs) like it is if we make it one (laughs) (laughs) so uh kathy um 
like I said, she went to New Hyde Park High School on Long Island and upon graduation went and got started training to be a dental hygienist. And during her training, okay. she, yeah, yeah. Uh, she moved to an East Side Manhattan building that was owned by the Durst organization. And this, like I said, was managed by Robert Durst. And according to Kathy's sister, Mary, again, I'm getting most of my information from this one interview with her. Mm-hmm. There was an instant mutual attraction and chemistry between the two of them. Uh, Mary said that they both had a sort of magnetism that just drew them together. They met in early fall of 1971, and at the start, the McCormicks and the Hugheses, because at this point, Mary was married to her husband, Tom Hughes, they thought that Robert was a wonderful boyfriend. Then there was one source that said that it was like a fairy tale with this rich, upper-class, handsome Prince Charming falling in love with his blue-collar Cinderella. They knew that if they got together, then that would be the thing that she needed to step out of being a working family. She had aspirations and being from a blue collar family was not going to probably get her. Right. So, uh, but granted, that was one source. Uh, That's all it said in the interview with Mary was that they liked him at first and they thought that he was a good boyfriend. The rest of it, I think, is all like sensationalized speculation. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it should be noted, however, that the Durst family did not flaunt their wealth. They did not wear designer stuff. They didn't drive in chauff- with chauffeured limos, even though they were million to billionaires. They didn't act like they were rich. So at first, Kathy was like, she knew Robert was wealthy, but she wasn't quite aware of how wealthy. Right, right. So after two dates, yes, you heard me correctly, two dates, one, two dates, Robert asked Kathy to move in with him to a property he owned in Middlebury, Vermont, to help him run his health food store. Yeah, <laughs> so, so they met They met in the fall of 1971. So fall is sometimes September, October, November. They went a beautiful on- time in Vermont. The yeah, well, they, they were living in Manhattan at the time. So An okay time in Manhattan. <laughs> Not as many leaves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he asked her after their second date, to move in with him in Vermont. And in January of 1972, so just a few short months after they met, she did just that. She moved in to his house in Vermont and helped him run his health food store. That might've gotten me, like I'm sitting here being like, oh my God, two dates, moving states. But then I'm like, but it's Vermont, which is not New York, which is a this huge- This guy moment. was very wealthy, very and handsome, he was, very charming. Yeah, and he was rich and he's like, hey, move in with me and help me run a business. And also I'm rich and this is Vermont. I, you know what? Yeah, I, that would have gotten me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So friends said that at first they had a picture perfect romance and he was wonderful to Kathy and mm. she was faithful to him. Well, they, they said that they'd like go and hang out with them and it, there was nothing to suggest. Okay. So they ran this little health food store in Vermont and things were going fine until Seymour started pressuring Robert to move back to New York City and said, hey, quit this little daydream, join the family business. (laughs) So the couple moved back to Manhattan and on Robert's 30th birthday on April 12th, 1973, the two were wed. And yes, if you did the quick math in your head like I did when I read that fact, he was 30 and she was 20. Yeah, they were 10 years apart in age. I don't like it. He was born in, they were like nine, nine and a half years apart in age because uh, he was born in 1943 and she was born in 1952. It's just, it's, it's, here's the thing about age gaps. 
it's <sighs> the biggest time they bother like there's obviously like if one of them is underage that's not acceptable in any way whatsoever like once they're both of legal age the age gaps are a little kind of like i'm like okay if i can see the argument for blah blah blah. something about though when one of them is still a teenager like yeah legal age over 18 however 30 19 Although I just I just did the math in my head. I miss math. If she was born in 52 and they got married in 73, she was 21. Okay. 21. But they started okay. dating when he was like my age, like 29, yeah. 20, 29, and she was 18, 19. It's slightly more acceptable, but I still don't like the idea of some oh God, and then everyone's different and everyone um, obviously matures at different rates. It's something about the idea of a 19-year-old dating someone who's almost in their 30s. I could never date a 19-year-old. That right, because 19-year-olds are stupid. We were both baby. 19 at one point, and we were stupid. I was as incredibly proof. stupid as a 19-year-old. As Okay, this is my, my mentality on it. As proof, because my this is my husband's kid. My husband's the same age as me, the exact same age as me. We're only like two months apart in age, and he did not have a teen pregnancy with his with his ex. It was they were both in their twenties. I, as a twenty nine, almost thirty year old, by the time you listeners listen to this, as a thirty year old, have an eight year old at a socially accept that was given birth when my husband and his ex, who's also my age, were at a socially acceptable age to have kids. If a 19-year-old had an 8-year-old, that's not acceptable. Right. Yeah. That's my stance. If I'm old enough to have a third grader, the person I'm with should also be old enough to have a third grader. Right. So that's where my stance is, but that's different because I'm a parent. Yeah, I just just have vivid memories of the... the stuff I was doing at age 19. And um, let's see, that was when I, in sub-zero weather, walked to the local market, bought a two-pound brick of the, like, cheddar cheese, like the hunter's brick of Cabot cheese. Walked, that was all, that was, I bought that and maybe, like, two liters of Mountain Dew. And I walked back to the dorm and I sat in the dark in my dorm and I ate a brick of cheese, like <laughs> holding it like it was a sandwich. And I just ate it. I just ate it. I just sat there. I was like, this is a good decision. In the dark. No, like no music playing, no TV, nothing. Just in the dark, eating a brick of two pounds of cheese like it was a thing to do. My roommate came in, turned on the lights. We made eye contact. She said, I'm going to go. And then led (laughs) the person she was trying to hook up with back out into the hallway. And I'm pretty sure they went to his room. But that's, and then let's see, two weeks later, a friend of mine uh, tried to convince me to go hunt UFOs on top of local mountain. I shouldn't. On top of ski resort mountain. (laughs) Say, say ski local mountain so I can spice them in. Local mountain. <laughs> local mountain. <laughs> <laughs> local mountain nearby. 
So that's the decision. That's the great decision making I was doing at age 18 and 19. You see, I like let's let's review brick of cheese in one sitting UFO hunting at 1 a.m. Yeah, I just remembered another good way to determine if it's acceptable to date someone. What were they doing when I was there? their age so when i was like two months ago i was working a nine-to-five job raising a child paying bills and all that fun stuff my husband was working a nine-to-five job raising his children you know doing exactly what he's doing now okay that's fine say that he was five years younger than me so i was going out and drinking what was he doing when he was uh when i was you know 24 25 that would make him 19 20 what was he doing then okay well, we're both making questionable choices, but we're adults now. If you're Robert Durst, I'm 29 years old. What was I doing when I was 18? I was going to college. I was on the varsity team. I was, I was, you know, doing the newspaper. But what was she doing when I was 18? The spelling bee at the local elementary school. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Learning my times tables. Doing homework with her mommy. Flashcards. Did they have flashcards then? I don't know. I don't know. Oh no. Hmm. But yeah. I'm so it's all flashbacks. Mm, flashbacks to flashcards. Flashbacks to flashcards. All right. Ah. All right so <laughs> I'm gonna get back to the story now. We okay. kind of derailed. Okay. So the early years of their marriage were filled with indulgence and excess. They toured the Mediterranean. They partied heavily at Studio 54. And yes, that's the Studio 54. I think I mentioned this a little bit in the bonus episode. Okay, the, uh, that's where all the cocaine is. Yes, the, I, the what I wrote here is the club known for its cocaine-addled, sex-driven, absolutely crazy mm. parties. Mm. At one point, the Dursts and the Hugheses bought a racehorse together because Tom Hughes, which was, like I said, Mary's husband, said it was a good tax deduction. Once again, great decision-making. Let's buy a horse. They had money. I know, but that's, oh, God. The money was there. They had a posh apartment in Manhattan and they had an upstate weekend home. Like they were very bougie. The Durst didn't didn't flaunt their wealth, but they used their wealth to have a above comfortable life. Yes. Um, However, a few years into their marriage, things started going south. According to some sources, Robert would often do very random things that made people think he was unhinged. Like, <laughs> no, be <laughs> like there'd be silence and he would just start barking. Okay. So I know, like, I know that from the bonus episode, like we know that he has possible. He has mental illness. He, he has, he has mental illness. Yes. Um, sometimes People just do that. And I cite for my example, a former cohort, one of my favorite people I have ever worked with, who has since retired, and I miss working with him so much, whenever it would get quiet behind the circulation desk, he would start quacking like a duck. I used to meow. Yeah. and But you just hear it from like just randomly in the light. He wouldn't even necessarily be at the desk. He'd be shelving books and since it would be quiet and you'd be like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to check these books in and I'm going to put them on the cart to go. In. And you just hear quacking from the stacks. You're like, what the hell? <laughs> so sometimes people just do that just to make noise. And we're yeah. like, we're like coworker. Why are you doing that? And he's like, meh, why not? It's like, yeah. oh God, I miss working with him. He was so fun. But, um, uh... 
right after the sources that said he started barking, they said if that didn't get the response he wanted, he would start yelling and screaming. Words or just noise? Did not specify. Uh-huh. Probably words. Some said something about like profanity. Profanity. Oh, okay. Or just start picking fights with the people in the room. I know people that do that. I also want to say, like, at, I'm going to reiterate something that I said in the bonus episode. This was the 70s around this time when Robert wasn't smoking pot, he was snorting cocaine, and sometimes he mixed the two. He was never sober, he was never clear headed. Ugh, uh, cocaine will mess up your brains. Yeah. So about three years into this relationship, into his marriage with uh, Kathy, she found out she was pregnant. And Kathy always wanted children. And according to Mary, she was so excited and so happy. But Robert, on the other hand, did not want kids and he forced her to get an abortion. (sighs) See, not getting into pro-life, pro-choice. I believe it is a woman's choice. But the thing is, a woman's choice to have an abortion also means a woman's choice to not have Not have, right. Yeah, it's it's the choice. The choice is to choose. It's her choice. Yeah, but he forced her to have an abortion because he did not want to. Yeah, that is also, that is as equally not okay as denying someone access to that. Yeah, and according to Mary, this was when the relationship took a sharp downturn. I can imagine. Yeah, Yeah. that would, that would definitely really kind of put a kink in any kind of good vibes happening. Uh, So Kathy, sometime during the marriage, enrolled in nursing school in Danbury, Connecticut. And Robert seemed very supportive of his wife becoming a nurse. So he bought a cottage in South Salem, New York, so it would be an easier commute to her nursing school. Okay. Immediately after graduating nursing school, Kathy then enrolled in the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx and was said to have been in... Yeah, she was said to have been an enthusiastic student, always sitting in the front row, always taking notes, always asking questions, and her dream was to become a pediatrician. Aww. So Ro- Robert, who was very fine with the idea of a nurse as a wife, did not seem to be as enthused with the idea of a doctor as a wife. Because uh, to, have a, to have a doctor as a wife meant to have a, a wife who could earn a decent living and have a decent life for herself. One also, of the doctors you'd have that thing of people would introduce you as doctor and mister, and he probably wouldn't want that. That would yeah. be good for his ego. Well, the documentaries I watched, uh, one of them suggested that every step she made closer to having her own life outside of being the wife of a millionaire was one step closer to him losing all control he had over her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the closer he got to losing control, the more his possessiveness escalated. At one point, he even cut off all of her credit cards to keep her absolutely financially dependent on him. And in a predictable pattern, eventually this possessiveness turned into violence. One of Kathy's nursing school classmates, Eleanor Joy Schwank, said during an interview in 2000, I never witnessed it, but Kathy would call me saying, Bobby's being really violent today. One Thanksgiving at the McCormick family house, Robert told Kathy it was time to leave. He was done being at the the family Thanksgiving party. But seeing as she was around her mother and her siblings, she didn't immediately leave. She didn't go, okay, yeah, get up and get her stuff. She was still sitting there and she was wrapping up her conversation. Robert didn't like this and was very impatient to leave on his terms, not hers. So went to the couch, grabbed her by the hair and yanked her up onto her feet in front of her whole family. Oof. That poses the age-old question. If this was how he acted in front of her family, in front of people that loved and cared about her, how was he acting in private when no one saw? Um, Her sister told of another occasion she heard about where he learned that she was 
in the apartment that they shared talking to some mutual friends of theirs. And these mutual friends happen to be men. Yeah. Probably because it was a man talking to his wife or maybe because he didn't want her talking to his people mm. without him, whatever the nice. reason, he decided to storm into the apartment and he kicked the acquaintance right in the face. What? He kicked the acquaintance in the face. Was the acquaintance lying on the floor? How did he do? I'm guessing he was sitting on the couch and he just high kicked him in the face. I don't know. It just said he kicked him square in the face. Uh, wow. This man eventually sued and settled a lawsuit over the incident with Robert in like, I think they call it surrogate scar, whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Scar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I know how. I don't know. I, I, I have no bearing on how flexible Robert Durst was. I mean, I know how to do it. Like a stand, if someone's standing, I know how to kick someone in the face if they're standing, but like. I, I don't know. It, it did not specify. I did not dig too deep into it because this was not about the man he kicked in the face. This was about Kathy. Right. So while the violence escalated, sometimes it even sent Kathy to the hospital. And despite this, Kathy held on to the mentality that unfortunately a lot of abuse victims hold on to. She believed that while she was scared of Robert and worried that he would escalate to killing her, she felt that she could handle him. And as his violence escalated, so too would her ability to handle it. Oh, no. Regardless of her belief on whether or not she could handle it, her friend and an attorney named Ellen Strauss said that she would often call to discuss the escalating violence. Call and say, you know, I'm scared. Bobby's getting violent again. You know, he, he really did a number on me this time. Um, and eventually one time uh, she told her, Ellen, if anything happens to me, look to Bob. Bob did it. Don't let him get away with it. So by December of 1981, Kathy was talking to lawyers about divorce. And early January of 1982, Kathy went to the hospital and was treated for bruises and abrasions on her face. So at this point, like, she's even thinking that she's done. She's talking to people about leaving. And yes, the violence is just escalating. A friend of Mary's said she went and met with Kathy at their East Manhattan apartment on January 29th of 1982. The reason for it was Mary was looking to sublet the apartment. So if, if a situation between her and Robert became too threatening, there would be an alternate place to stay. Mm-hmm. On the night of January 31st, 1982, Gilbert uh, Najami, another friend of Kathy's, was hosting a party, uh, and Kathy showed up unexpectedly wearing sweatpants, uh, which startled Gilbert for two reasons. The first one is Kathy never showed, actually three, Kathy never showed up anywhere unexpected. Right. She was acting erratic, scared, and there, he knew something was wrong. Right. And also, Kathy was wearing sweatpants. Kathy was always the best dressed person in the room. And she oh, showed up okay. unexpectedly wearing sweatpants. Okay, so she bolted from somewhere, like, without planning. Um, during the party, she had a phone exchange, which sounded pretty heated with Robert. And then she promptly left, saying that she was heading back to their South Salem home. Okay. Five days later, Mary received a phone call from Robert, simply saying, have you heard from Kathy? And she said, no, I, I, I haven't, but I've been meaning to talk to you about her, to which Robert cut her off and said, I don't have time for you. I need to call the cops and hung up. At that point, Mary said that she turned to her husband and said, I think he killed my sister. Robert went to the police station and apparently with a newspaper in hand featuring a photo of his father with the headline reading, the men who own New York. Mm. And while holding this newspaper reported his wife missing. 
Uh, he offered up a reward and seemed to be cooperating with the police, but maintained that she probably ran away with her drug dealer, saying that she also was smoking <laughs> Her family did not buy this for a second because she was in her fourth year and about to enter her final term of medical school. She was right. She was a, not even a handful of months from graduating with her medical degree to be a pediatrician. Right. Okay. And yeah. So that would be, I mean, it wouldn't be like, I mean, I'm sure there are people that do that and also like struggle with addiction, but it yeah. would be unlikely that she would risk that just exactly. knowing the kind of personality that you've told me about, like that would seem unlikely. Yeah. Her family said that all she wanted to do was help children. And that's all she was talking about. When police investigated Robert, he admitted that he did argue with his wife uh, the last night she was seen, which was Sunday, January 31st. But he told the police that he met up with her in South Salem. And after a long talk about the argument, he put Kathy on a train to Manhattan that night so she could attend school the next day. He said he had later spoken to her by phone, which was after she arrived at her Manhattan apartment. And this was after he had been having a few drinks with a friend, establishing an alibi. Right. Right. So this, this begs the question. Why didn't he report her till five days later? The answer was he thought she was at school. So why report her now? Because the school called and said that she hadn't been there in a week. So this begs the question, why did the school wait a week to do a well wellness check? Right. If she hadn't if if she had no previous history of yeah. uh unex like missing missing yeah. school with no explanation. Uh, the answer is because the supervisor of the medical school received a voicemail from a woman claiming to be Kathy, calling her out sick. That was their story. Okay. I, I say I say claimed to be Kathy because one of the documentaries I saw, uh, who she called is not who Kathy would have known to call. It was like the supervisor to the school, not like her teachers. Right. And yeah, it would it, okay. So it was like the person that's like, "Hey, let me look up who is like a public number of the school I can call." Exactly. Without exactly. knowing the personal contact info. Yeah. Teachers. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So her family had decided that because the police weren't really doing a very good investigation on their part, so they decided that they were going to investigate on their own. They went to the Lakeside Cottage in South Salem. Okay. Uh, in the drawer of her dresser, they found the earrings that she was last seen wearing by her friend at the dinner party. Right. Because this thing, she was wearing like diamond earrings, but she was also wearing sweatpants. And they yeah. found the diamond earrings in the drawer. They also went through the trash and they found a list in Robert Durst's handwriting that read town, dump, bridge, dig, boat, and shovel. Uh, despite, the, despite this, Susan Berman, a longtime friend of Durst, gave him an alibi, so he was never charged nor tried for the disappearance. And since a body was never found, they could not treat it as a homicide, and there was too little evidence to bring forward any charges relating to her disappearance. Her body yeah. has never been found. She has yeah. never been located. There's never been any sightings of her. I remember that part, the very, very frustrating part. Yeah. Um, in 1998, years after Kathy went missing, uh, Robert filed for divorce, claiming spousal abandonment. So in 1999, Mary and her other siblings, including Jim McCormick, had spent the past 18 years refusing to let the story peter and die out. 
They opened a foundation in her name called the Kathy's Porchlight Foundation. They continued to speak openly about the cases and interviews implicating Robert. I think some of them were like, would hand out missing persons flyers on the street. They literally did not let it die out. So in 1999, under the guidance of a police detective named Joe Becerra, the New York State Police very quietly and without a statement reopened her case, which was made public the following year. In this investigation, they began looking more heavily into Durst, and 18 years later, they finally did an official search of the South Salem home, which it should be noted was no longer owned by him, and there'd be no evidence 18 years later. That's I don't a, know. Okay, I, I'm laughing because I literally don't know how else to respond to that. Like, that's awkward laughter of, what the fuck? Yeah. We're yeah. gonna search it! Has he lived there in 18 years? No! Yeah. So um, will everything you find be tainted evidence at the very best? Yes. Yeah. But we're gonna search it. Yeah. So shocking no one. Even though in, in the state of uh, New York, at least at this time, uh, five years after you went missing, if there's been no sound, you are considered dead. Yeah. You're considered deceased. But despite the fact that she was considered deceased, there was not enough evidence. The Taylor Swift song, No Body, No Crime, comes up. There was no body. So there wasn't a crime they could implicate him in. The district's attorney office refused to implicate him. They refused to indict him. They refused to press charges. Okay. Frustrating. Yeah. In 2016, the McCormick family requested that she be found legally dead and not assumed dead. This I remember, uh, yeah, I remember this. Yeah, which the judge approved in March of 2017. Kathy's mother, Ann McCormick, uh, sued Durst uh, for $100,000 in a wrongful death lawsuit, claiming that he killed her and hid her body, meaning the fact that he hid her body and never told police where to find it, uh, meant that he denied them their right to bury her. Mm-hmm. This lawsuit went nowhere. Yeah. Kathy's older sister, Jenny McKeon, uh, once said in a People magazine interview that Anne would barricade her house every night before bed as she was afraid the family's constant search for justice against Robert would lead him to making her his next victim. She spent the rest of her life in fear that Robert would then attack one of her other kids. Yeah. Jenny remembered leaving her mom's place and being told, be safe. He disguises himself. He dresses in drag. He has multiple identities. He has properties everywhere. Be aware of strangers. Look behind your shoulder. Be safe. Yeah. He lived in fear of him until she died in May 2017, aged 102, without justice being found for her daughter. Kathy's older sister, uh, Carol Beaumont, her other sister, (laughs) she had three, filed a new wrongful death lawsuit in August of 2019, which accused Robert of murdering Kathy. But this was dismissed on the grounds that she had waited too long to file the suit. Because you got to remember, once they got her declared legally dead, her date of death was changed to January 31st, 1982, which meant that the judge was able to say it's been too long. Which shouldn't be a thing if it's involving death if it's involving the death of another human i don't think there should be a statute of limitations regarding when you can file a claim like that yeah uh so the statute of limitations of most things should be abolished i think yeah so anyway moving on uh may 17th 2021 uh, so this year yeah (laughs) uh the westchester county new york district attorney mimi rocha I might be butchering her last name, R-O-C-H-A, 
uh, made a statement saying that the disappearance of Kathy Durst had been reclassified as a murder and would be reinvestigated as a homicide instead of a missing persons. So there is now currently an open homicide investigation with Robert Durst being considered as the main suspect. Yes, yes, yes. But Robert's lawyers to this day claim that there is no evidence linking him to the crime and he is yet to be indicted, although the investigation is still ongoing. Yes. And yeah. So that's a lot of bummer. I'm going to end it here. Uh, sources I used were, as always, Wikipedia. I used two documentary series episodes, one from a investigation discovery called Robert Durst, The Missing Pieces, although that didn't really cover this crime as much, but it was a good, like, getting the, yeah. getting the story. Um, and uh, an episode of Dominic Dunn's Power, Privilege, and Justice. That... Um, Again, focused on another one of his crimes, but it gave a lot of information on the state of Kathy's marriage and then went into a little bit about her disappearance. I also used an article called 35 Years Later, Sister in Durst Case is Still Looking for Answers, which was from a WordPress blog dedicated to Robert Durst. That link is robertdurst.wordpress.com. Mm. Uh, the rest were all tabloid style articles, right. um, you know, really clickbaity, like catch ya. But they actually had, I did do a, one Dateline article from, from Dateline NBC where they interviewed Jim, um, so Jim McCormick, mm -hmm. uh, her brother, once she was reclassified as deceased and uh, he started planning a memorial for her. And the more tabloidy ones were In Touch Weekly did an article called Robert Durst is suspected of murdering his missing wife, Kathleen McCormick Durst to learn about her. And People Magazine's mother of Robert Durst's missing first wife lived in fear of him. Mom would barricade her house. That was the other article. And then Answer Africa did a clickbaity article uh, called Kathleen McCormick, The Untold Truth of Robert Durst's Wife. Okay. So those are my sources. 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 Oh, boy. Yeah. I knew... I knew some, I knew like kind of the general gist of that story, but I didn't know a lot of the finer details of it. And mainly what I knew about that was that his first wife disappeared suspiciously, was mm -hmm. never found. The very, very frustrating parts of, well, we can't prove anything and therefore, blah, 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 not gonna do anything about it. Then it's sitting there going, ooh. He's a, a don't he's even, a wild character. He's a wild guy. <laughs> yeah, it's a whew. like if someone was writing like a fictional story and this was the character they were writing and I was their editor, I'd be like, it's a little much. <laughs> this is a little unbelievable. <laughs> this is a little unbelievable, and I think maybe you should tone it down a bit. Yeah, as I said when I was talking um, to you earlier. Um, I started going into this and I was like, I have to pick just one thing that he did because right. if I covered his entire life and all of his crimes, it would be a five hour episode. It would, hour episode <laughs> I swear to God. There's so much. There's stuff that you can't even cover. Like, Wait. he was a wild, yeah. wild character. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, I guess we can 
tell people where to find us now. Yes. If you have questions, comments, concerns, sweet nothings, gentle hellos, stories you want us to share, you can email us at trulyfabulouslymonstrous at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram where we post pictures and sometimes videos related to the things we talk about um, when I remember (laughs) (laughs) called Truly Fabulously Monstrous. And uh, we also have a Twitter where I mainly post memes and uh, funny, I I roast us both and our inability to be chill or have short episodes. You also sometimes post the uh, either uh, bloopers or snippets of oh, the yes, episode that the, I find uh, Blooper, because uh, Hattie often sends me fun editing outtakes. Like, here's a thing we said here. Remember this? Like, I do. Sometimes well, I keep them in. sometimes they they wind up in the episode but other times they do not and then it's just very funny out of context things but that's our twitter uh at tfab monster pod check us out on there so the next episode i will be telling a a weird a weird a cryptid a spooky thing it might be a spooky a spooky i'm excited and a spooky (laughs) i'm very excited i look forward to that we'll be there and we hope you will too Hi. Hi.